Welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. So before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It is not taking into consideration your personal objectives, financial situation, or needs. So we've got a good episode today, I think. We're going to look back at market crashes. And Shawnee is going to be very chipper today because it is 10 a.m. <laughs> and she's had two coffees with, what, six shots? Yeah. So yeah, you have, you have three in each one. I have. I'm going to be very energetic. Okay. Well, that's that's exciting. <laughs> the other thing that's exciting is we have a podcast hosting platform that I was digging into. And it turns out we are huge. In your in, spare time. In my spare time. We are huge in Madagascar. We are, yeah. So what do you, what do you think about that? What do you know about Madagascar? Uh, so my knowledge is fairly limited. I mean, what I do know is from those like David Attenborough documentaries. So I know about animals in Madagascar. Okay. Well, that's, that's something, I guess. Um, but yeah, we had, so we had 61% growth in our downloads in Madagascar in the past month. <laughs> and we always talk about compounding. So if we compound that growth, in five years, we'll have 79 trillion downloads in Madagascar, which is amazing. Um, so that is the power of compounding and then, of course, extrapolating into the future. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Why, why do you think we're so successful there, Shani? Uh, well, I think it probably helps that we're both born on islands. Um, I also think that once border restrictions are relaxed, we should probably plan a full-scale publicity tour. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so if you're listeners in Madagascar, we want to hear from you. Um, send an email to the address in the show notes and let us know how we can get to our 79 trillion download goal. Exactly. And then maybe in the future, we can reveal what islands we were both born on. Yours might be more obvious because you keep talking about it, but I, I never have. So, uh, so yeah, that's for the future. But now we have to talk about crashes. And of course, we're going to talk about history and history is your favorite thing, Shawnee. Talk about market history. So, um, yeah, what do you, what do you think about that? Are you excited about this conversation? Yeah. I mean, I feel like you're really well placed to have these conversations, Mark, because you were like actually there. So yes, yes, that's, that's, that's me. I, I was, I was, well, we'll get to the two crashes. <laughs> um, this morning, I quoted Hemingway, and Shawnee called me an old man. So it's been quite a day, a lot of activities before 10 a.m. But we're going to go back, and we're going to look at two stock market bubbles and the subsequent crash that followed them. And we're going to see if there's any lessons for today. And you know, hopefully, those lessons can answer a couple questions for us. Are we currently in a bubble? And what should we do about that as investors? And so, Shani, where are we going to start off on? What's the first crash or the first bubble we're going to look at? Uh, so we're going to talk about the Nifty 50, which is the run-up during the 60s and early 70s and the bear market in 72 and 73. Okay. Just to be clear, I was not alive during this, despite what Shani said earlier. But so Nifty 50, Shani, what does that mean? So the Nifty 50 was the name given to a group of US growth stocks, which performed very strongly in the 60s and early 70s, becoming symbolic of the spirit of the time. So the companies, including household names like Macca's, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Johnson & Johnson and Pfizer, just to name a few. They traded on very high valuations over many years, and the product lines range from drugs, computers, and electronics to photography, food, tobacco, and retailing, among others. And notably absent are the cyclical industry, so auto steel, transportation, capital goods, and oil. Yeah, and that's that's pharmaceuticals, not drugs. But you know, anyway. <laughs> um, so as you can imagine from those names that Shani went through. All of these were very strong companies, and they were growing quickly. They had strong balance sheets. And 
as the bull market continued, they became known as one decision stocks. So what this means is they could be purchased at any price and would never have to be sold. So as the market continued to climb, of course, valuation levels continued to rise, but investors simply ignored them because of this one decision rule that they came up with. So does this sound familiar at all, Shani? It does. So by the end of 72, the average valuation of the Nifty 50 stocks was 41.9, more than double that of the S&P 500, which had a PE of 18.9. Over one-fifth of these firms sported price-to-earnings ratios in excess of 50, and Polaroid was selling at over 90 times earnings. Yeah. So as an investor, by the early 70s, life was pretty good. And of course, as the markets went up, more people became interested in investing. And so back in those days, it was easier to invest in funds and individual securities, and fund managers became the rock stars of the investing world, which seems like this would be a time that you would enjoy, Shani, because you were very into funds. But for 1960 to 1965, assets of funds doubled from 65 to 70. They doubled again. And of course, they peaked in 1972. So by the end of the 60s, there were seven times as many Americans that held shares than during the height of the 1929 bubble. And once again, I don't want to sound like a broken record, Shawnee, but does this sound familiar? It does. So um, here we sit at the beginning of 73, and a couple of things started to happen. So inflation starts up in late 1972 for, among other reasons, huge budget deficits that needed financing. So the market starts going south in 1973 and throughout 1974. 73 and 74 was the worst downturn since the Great Depression started, which saw the S&P 500 go down 42%, and it took 5.8 years for a full recovery. This affected all global markets, so much more severely than the US. Um, For instance, the UK market didn't recover for over 13 years. Yeah, and the Nifty 50 was at the center of this fall. So from their highs, some of the share price declines to 74 lows were quite large. So Xerox went down 71%, Avon down 86%, Polaroid down 91%, and Coca-Cola down 63%. So that's what happened. So Shani, are there lessons we can take from this crash? Well, let's start by looking at what happened to the Nifty 50 over the long term. Luckily, we don't have to spend days combing through premium data because someone did an analysis for us. And that somebody is Jeremy Siegel, who is a professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. So he did this study in 1998 and took a look at the Nifty 50 and saw how those 50 stocks performed between December 72, the peak of their bubble, and 1998. And what he found is that on both an equal weight basis with rebalancing and an equal weight basis without rebalancing, the Nifty 50 stocks performed close to the index, the S&P 500, over that time frame. So the S&P returned 12.7% a year, while the rebalanced portfolio performed 12.5% a year, and the non-rebalanced portfolio performed 12.2% a year. All right. So now I'm going to take a step back and explain some of Shani's jargon. <laughs> She's trying to confuse you. Um, so yeah, let's just explain a couple of terms. So when we say equal weighted, we mean that an equal amount of money was put into each of the 50 shares. For the non-rebalanced side of things, it means that after the original allocation, nothing was changed during this 26-year period. For rebalanced, it means that at the end of every single year, changes were made to the portfolio to make everything balanced again, so that each of those 50 companies had the same amount of money allocated to them. So that, of course, means selling winners and buying losers. 
All right. So now that I've cleared up your jargon, Shawnee, we can uh, we can move on to what this Jeremy Siegel study actually means. So our first lesson is based on the data that Shawnee walked through, and that's over the long term. As investors, we want to own great companies. Unlike many bubbles that are more speculative in nature, and we'll talk about this in a bit, this bubble involved buying great companies. As we mentioned before, these were all established companies that were growing quickly and had strong balance sheets. Many of these companies have moats or sustainable competitive advantages. Now, Morningstar didn't start until 1984, so we can't look at historical moat ratings. But this list is filled with Morningstar moat ratings. Of the top 10 best performers during this time period, nine of them have wide moats. So Philip Morris, Pfizer, Bristol-Myers, Coke, Merck, Pepsi, Eli Lilly, Procter & Gamble, and Johnson & Johnson. And one GE has a narrow moat. So buying a great company means buying a company with a sustainable competitive advantage. Um, so what does this mean, Mark? So let's start with a couple basic concepts from capitalism. So capitalism means competition. So companies compete for customers because they want to make profits. And to compete for customer means they want to offer better products and they want to offer them for as cheap as possible, as long as they're still making profits. So when an individual or a company comes up with a great idea, people copy them. When someone copies your product, a couple things happen. Either you lose market share as people migrate to your competitors or you are forced to cut prices to compete which reduces your margin. So over time, most companies are faced with a situation where competition leads to poor outcomes for investors. And as Mark said, this is the case for most companies, but not all companies. So some companies are able to maintain a competitive advantage, which allows them to maintain profit margins and market share over long time periods. And these companies are the companies that we want to own as investors. We saw this in Jeremy Siegel's study, and when we look at the growth rates of the Nifty 50 stocks, they averaged 11% earnings per share growth between 74 and 98. That compares to an overall earnings per share growth of 8% for the index. And that 3% higher growth rate in earnings per share, it compounds just like our downloads in Madagascar, right? <laughs> so what that means is we can look at the impact of that compounding by looking at what $1 of earnings would grow to over that 24-year period. So at 8% growth, the dollar of earnings would grow to $6.24 in earnings. At 11%, it would grow to $12.34. So assuming there's no change in the multiple investors are willing to pay for those earnings, you would see a return that is 93% more for the fastest growing companies. So that's why in this situation, even with that big drop in valuation levels on those stocks between 72 and 98, they still earned a return that was close to that of the index. So that's the first lesson from the Nifty 50 crash. As investors, we want to buy great companies and great companies are those with sustainable competitive advantages. Finding those great companies that grow at higher rates than the market over decades is the way that we can compound our wealth over the long term. However, we want to be careful that we don't pay too much for those companies. Remember that you're always going to have to pay for quality. So those great companies are always going to be more expensive on a relative basis. Yeah, and the run-up during the 60s recognized this fact, that great companies were worth owning. The problem, of course, was the notion that they were worth owning at any price. So that is the second lesson that comes out of the Nifty 50 crash. Buy those high-quality companies at compelling prices. And it can be really hard as an investor who's trying to do something sensible, and that's not paying too much for great companies, when the market keeps going up. So nobody wants to hear that the market is expensive and nobody wants to hear that what they're doing isn't smart when they're getting positive reinforcement every day from rising markets. The feeling that these market conditions elicit is why greed drives markets well past what they're worth. 
So we have an action bias as investors. Is there anything we can do, Mark, to satiate this need for action while not jumping on the bandwagon? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> of course. Um, you got bandwagon out. That's good. Yeah. So <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No. So one productive use of time in overvalued markets is to make a plan. And Shani, I know you are a big fan of planning. So literally every Sunday or Monday morning, Shani <laughs> creates this very detailed plan of all the work she's going to do during the week. And then she just takes that plan from the week before and copies it over to the next week because she doesn't do any <laughs> of it. But as investors, a good uh, piece of planning that you can do is identify those great companies that you want to own and think of a reasonable price that you would like to pay for them, including, of course, an adequate margin of safety. And at the end, we'll give you some resources on how actually to do that. So, Mark, I think maybe this is a good time to tell your MasterCard story. Yes, my MasterCard story. So I told this I told this on a webinar two days ago. And it was actually nice because it was a very dumb move by me. <laughs> and then people were writing in like, it's okay. Like we all they make were mistakes. You. I know, nice. I know. It was very nice. <laughs> um, but yeah, the MasterCard story is a little bit embarrassing, but MasterCard is a company I wanted to own. And obviously I just thought payments would uh, continue to move um, outside of cash and into uh, into companies like MasterCard that processes electronic payments. And when there was the big fall in March of 2020, the COVID-related fall in the markets, I was getting ready to buy MasterCard. And for some reason, I mentally fixated on a price of $200. And, you know, trades in the US, I would come back from the gym in the morning and I'd sit there and watch. And I think it closed at $201 one day. I and mean, if you're listening to this and you're looking at the time zones, you'll realize how early Mark goes to the gym. It's quite frightening. I, I do. I don't sleep very well. <laughs> but um, but yeah, anyway, I think it got down to a low of $201 and I never bought it. And then, of course, the market's recovered. And now I think it's a 363 And it was just an opportunity to buy a great company at what I thought was a really compelling price, but I became fixated on a number. Um, so don't do that, but do make a list of companies that you would love to own someday, and then hopefully they'll actually be an opportunity. All right, so we're going to move on to the next market crash, and I was alive for this one, as were you, Shani. I was. Doing different things, probably, <laughs> but- What were you doing in 2000? I was in uni. Okay. Yeah. So um, we're going to look at, as Shani gave away, we're going to look at the dot-com crash that occurred in the early 2000s. Um, so once again, we'll start with a run-up before the crash. And that, of course, was the dot-com bubble. But it is important to note that we all look back on it as a dot-com bubble. But like every bubble at the time, people were calling it the new normal. So Shani, why don't you describe this for us? Yeah. So there are many stories we could tell about the tech run-up and speculative bubbles and that formed in any company that even remotely was associated with the internet. But to provide some perspective, in October 99, the market cap of the 199 internet stocks tracked by Morgan Stanley was a whopping $450 billion. But the total annual sales of these companies uh, came to only about $21 billion. And their annual profits, Mark? Yeah, well, I mean, this is a case of saying what profits, right? <laughs> um, so the collective losses of these 199 companies was $6.2 billion. And, you know, this is a really good example, Shani, because it illustrates the collective delusion of the market that somehow what used to matter no longer mattered. So it wasn't earnings and cash flow that was important anymore. It was instead eyeballs and clicks. And all these new made up uh, metrics were just invented by investors to justify the prices that they're paying for these companies. And as we like to say, it all works until it doesn't. 
So all markets performed really well during the late 90s, but the speculative bubble was centered on the Nasdaq, which is the exchange where most technology and new economy companies traded. Between 95 and 2000, the Nasdaq Composite Stock Market Index rose 400% and it reached a price to earnings ratio of 200. Yeah, and as the market climbed, there was this profound sense by many investors that this time was in fact different. As we said before, there was a notion that the traditional ways we evaluated companies no longer mattered, and there was also a sense that the economy had entered a new phase. And the basic premise was this. Technology, innovations, globalization, all of the things that were happening would continue to raise productivity. Well, this just didn't happen. In most developed markets, the productivity growth that happened during the 90s just disappeared and started trending downwards right after the tech bubble burst. And this is a common occurrence at the top of a bubble. The notion that this time is different and there is a justification for whatever is happening in markets. Another thing that characterized the run-up in the late 90s was the huge increase in interest in investing from retail investors. So investing became a bit like a sport. Dedicated investing channels like CNBC were playing everywhere and people were glued to the market. Online brokers played a key role as trading became significantly cheaper, and there was much talk of democratization of investing. In the US, as much as 40% of individual investors with financial assets between 25k and 99k made their first stock trade after January 96. All right, so big reductions in the cost of trading and the democratization of investing. Once again, any of this sound familiar, Shani? So, As the market, of course, continued to climb, more retail investors piled into the market. Over the course of the year 2000, as the stock market began its meltdown, individual investors all over the world poured $260 billion into U.S. equity funds. And meanwhile, after a spate of IPOs or new companies going public, insiders at dot-com companies cashed out for a total of $43 billion in 2000 and sold 23 times as many shares as they bought. Looking at the US, the most ever IPOs was launched in 99 with 486, which was followed by 429 in 2000. In 2020, there were 407, which was the highest total since 2000. So far in 2021, there have been 406 through the end of the quarter, a mild 941% increase over the same period in 2020. Yeah, so glad that we're establishing here that there are, of course, and once again, being very sarcastic, no parallels (laughs) to what's happening right now. All right, so what happened? Well, there was a lot of concern that the year 2000 problem was going to cause havoc when computers were unable to register the change to a new millennium. And that worry, of course, did not materialize. And after the millennium, Alan Greenspan, who headed up the Fed, he's the Federal Reserve chairman at the time, he came out with a plan to raise interest rates as he was concerned that, quote unquote, irrational exuberance was taking over the market. And, you know, it's pretty safe to say that the market did not take kindly to this. So the Nasdaq peaked on March 10th, 2000, a level that it did not surpass again until April 23rd, 2015. So as you can imagine, there were some pretty big falls in the market. The Nasdaq went down a total of 78% and hit a low in October 2002. While the fall was not as profound, the S&P 500 fell close to 39% over the same time period. So let's talk about some lessons here. Why don't you start out with the first lesson, Mark? Okay, so the first lesson is that someone is going to be left holding the bag when speculative mania hits the market. And there's that old poker saying, I don't know if this saying will also make you think or 
proclaim that I'm an old man, but <laughs> there's that old poker saying that says, if you look around the table and you can't figure out who the sucker is, it's probably you. And there are lots of people that cashed out during the dot-com boom. That includes all of these companies that went public, and then all the founders and executives who were dumping shares as they were going on CNBC and talking about the new economy. So who got left holding the bag in this market? Retail investors who bought into the hype and who were suffering from FOMO way before <laughs> FOMO became a thing. So for people that listened to our previous episode, I now know acronyms. You do. Including Outfit of the Day. So <laughs> You've used that a couple of times since since then. I have. I have. And every time you laugh at it or laugh at me, I guess is, <laughs> is what's really happening. Um, but a good example of this, this cashing out at the top is Mark Cuban. So Mark Cuban and Will should perk up at this, our producer, because he likes basketball. So Mark Cuban is a billionaire that owns the Dallas Mavericks, and he made a lot of his money back then. So he started a company called Broadcast.com, which he sold to Yahoo in 1999 for $5.7 billion. And this purchase by Yahoo is known as one of the worst deals of all time, and it shut down Broadcast.com within a couple of years. But anyway, Mark Cuban got paid, and a lot of the way that he got paid was in Yahoo stock, which he promptly hedged to protect him from a fall. So that's a really smart move. But the reason I wanted to mention Mark is because he's been in the news lately. He was championing GameStop. He is associated with SPACs. He's investing and talking up crypto, and all of this is going on his Twitter. And it's just interesting how the same characters are popping up in both bubbles. The second lesson is a similar one to the first. Valuation matters. We've talked through a couple of different stats about how outrageously priced internet-related shares have gotten. There was a wholesale creation of new valuation metrics, and there was piling into the NASDAQ trading at 200 times earnings with the justification that earnings didn't matter anymore. There can be long periods where fundamentals get thrown out the window, but remember you're buying a company when you invest in the share market, and eventually the ability of the company to make money is what matters and what you pay for those future earnings matter. Yeah, and I think the perfect example of this is not all the internet companies that never made a profit and quickly went out of business, but instead, let's look at Microsoft. So Microsoft was and is a great company. In 1999, it was the largest company in the world, and today is the second largest. So despite being a real company that had a near monopoly on PC software, and before we went on, Shani was talking about how good she is with the whole office suite. Um, so if anyone has Outlook questions. Isn't that why you hired me? Yeah, that's why I hired you. <laughs> I, I can't remember why I hired you at this point. But um, <laughs> but anyway, despite having this solid, great company with this near monopoly, Microsoft was outrageously expensive. It sold at 74 times earnings. So after a huge fall in the dot-com crash, it took nearly seven years for the share price to recover. So that's the same lesson from the first crash. What you pay actually matters. The next lesson is one that is particularly relevant now and is rel related to a couple of the earlier lessons. Be careful of proclamations that something has fundamentally and permanently changed, which justifies share prices. In 1999, it was a new economy and technology forever increasing productivity. Today, it's a notion that interest rates will forever be low and inflation will forever stay under control. In 99, the market turned on a dime when Greenspan said he was going to raise interest rates to combat speculation. Today, the market has priced in low interest rates and low inflation it won't take much of a change in thinking to cause a huge shift. All right. And the final lesson is that you can be right about a trend, but be wrong about an investment or the investment prospects of that trend. And so the internet 
did change the way we do everything. And it has a profound effect on every company and every person. And that didn't make this obvious thesis about the future of the world into a good investment. And we see this over and over again. So going back further in history, where I also was not alive, in 1840 in the UK, there was a huge bubble around railroads. And just like the internet, the railroad revolutionized society, but it created a self-promoting and overly optimistic bubble that eventually collapsed. This lesson is particularly relevant today when I hear all sorts of proclamations about what will change the world. Just remember that by the time something becomes obvious, it is more often than not a terrible investment. The nature of being obvious and universally accepted means that this rosy outlook is priced into any investment related to it. If there's any shift in sediment, if there's any deviation from this widely accepted path, then you're likely to see a profound change in the prospects of any investment you make. So let's sum up this episode. Hopefully we learned a couple of things that we should consider when looking at the current market. The key to investing is to tune out the noise and focus on two things, your goals and the fundamentals of investing. Yeah, it's like you're stealing my line, Shawnee. That that whole like <laughs> old man, I told you so notion. Yeah. That's good. So maybe you have learned something from me. Um, but yeah, unsurprisingly, I agree with you. So go back and listen to our podcast on setting investment goals or read our guide to portfolio construction. To focus on the fundamentals, you can revisit the concept of the Morningstar Investor in our guide to investing. So the Morningstar Investor is long-term focused. She's fixated on valuations and finding great companies. She knows the that knowledge is the foundation of independence. And she's also dumbfounded by what's going on now and knows that SPACs and NFTs and buy now, pay later valuations and this delusional Finfluencer guidance <laughs> is a recipe for disaster. So just remember, this time isn't different and we need to double down on the fundamentals of investing and that will get us through whatever is going to happen ahead. So that's our episode today. Um, we need to finish because it seems like Shawnee is crashing. <laughs> off of her coffees, but we would love any comments, um, ratings, or if you could share this podcast with your friends or family. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.